How do Roombas illustrate the promise and peril of translational research? Which valley of death is really the worst valley of death? And how can woolly mammoths save the planet from climate change? Today's guests include Andrew Sasanya, a policy analyst at the Day One Project, Oren Hoffman, a venture partner at The Engine, and Adam Marblestone, a biophysics PhD currently on a fellowship at Smith Futures. Pandemic permitting, I'm going to be in Italy in late August. Likely Rome, August 13th, 17th. Some cities yet to be determined. And then Milan, the 22nd to the 26th. It'd be awesome to do some meetups. If you live in Rome, Milan, or somewhere between Rome and Milan, please send me an email at jorschneider at gmail.com or hit me up on Twitter. So, Andrew, here at China Talk, we are suckers for think tanks trying new things. What's the backstory with the Day One Project, and how are you guys organized around getting a, a wider range of voices involved in science policy? Thanks for a nonpartisan initiative. On the hunt for some of the most ambitious ideas in science tech policy, looking to turn them into actionable proposals that can be effectively carried out by policymakers. And so we were launched back in, like, January 2020 with the spirit of giving policymakers a running start on day one of the 2021 presidential term. And so we knew back then that the moment offered an important opportunity for the science and tech community to inform the S&T agenda of whoever was going to be in office. Were you guys happy on November 4th or unhappy on November 4th? We're nonpartisan. Some ideas are more receptive to different audiences. We're nonpartisan. And so we, we serve as a platform for ideas. And so we were ready to offer up an array of good, bold, innovative ideas for anybody to take up. Great. So one of the interesting things about the day one model to me is that there is a staff, but you guys make a real point of not doing what other think tanks, CNAS, my affiliation included, do of having a small stable of adjunct fellows who contribute every once in a while. But it seems like you're doing more outreach and finding an even broader array of subject matter experts. What was the thought process behind that model? And what have you guys learned over the past uh, year and a half or so of trying to put that into action? Great policy ideas didn't always land at the right table. And when they did, they often weren't actionable enough. Good ideas come from academia and think tanks, but they usually come in the form of step one. And there's usually five or six steps like to go that need to happen before an idea is fully executable and nailing those implementation details is the name of the game and so we sought to remedy that implementation gap by refining these ideas and converting them into actionable solutions for policymakers to implement we're essentially a, a broker for policy ideas cool so the american science and technology technocracy what is working and not working about it I think there's a lot that's working. The general theme that, that comes up in a lot of the discussions has to do with this idea of sort of structural diversity or structural diversification of the ways that we do research. And the concern, I think, is that we have too few distinct mechanisms for, for creating and supporting different qualitatively different kinds of projects. There are certain kinds of, of research that you really need an individual scientist to be totally unrestricted for a 20-year period that they can come up with that idea. There's other research that needs something that looks more like a startup. We tend to have, I think, too much of a one-size-fits-all model, even as we have many different agencies like National Labs or DARPA or, or so on. I think it's still too far on the one-size-fits-all end of the spectrum. And to what extent do you think that is a view shared by the people who matter. I feel like I haven't gotten a lot of pushback to that statement because often when making that statement, that's not a statement that says any given 
things should go away. That's not an argument against an NIH R01 or a national lab or any particular thing. It's saying that on the margins, we want to make sure that we're not excluding certain kinds of work out of the system that are otherwise important. And that might be 1% level changes. That's not saying we need to totally transform the size of any given agency or something like that. That's saying we need to have more tools in the toolkit. I, I do think the technocracy, if you want to call it that, is tends to be Your work, more, more liberal-leaning and focused on the coasts and generally is focused a lot on innovation, which I think is fine. But I've sort of, as we've been living in the trenches here at the engine for the last couple of years, I've really focused away from innovation and especially government funding of innovation and really more towards, okay, it is great that all this great innovation is happening, and you know you would be you would be wrong to say that a disproportionate amount uh, isn't happening on the coast. But what does um, the U.S. really care about? And I think starting to talk about deployment and scale of these innovations is really where we need to get to as a society. And I actually give the Biden administration a lot of credit that social equity and wealth creation that is shared, especially in the Midwest and in the Gulf and in previously underserved communities by the technocracy is a, is something that we need to take a swing at. So that's that's really where a lot of our focus is, is where the, for folks that don't necessarily care about quantum qubits or fusion, but they care about jobs and they care about their communities. Like how can we help use these technologies and government interventions to serve those folks? And I actually think the the real positive thing here is that I think we can. So let's take a step back, Oren, and talk a little bit about your story and how it led you to activate. Maybe let's do the DARPA Roomba arc and is it possible to tie that to the themes you were just speaking to about maybe how it was or wasn't, how, how sort of that story of deployment was or wasn't coastal based? Um, wow. How to tie cats on Roombas to deployment and shared equity. That's going to be a trick. Um, I actually was, was, was on a previous podcast of yours. You talked about giving innovators space away from strict government contracts to, to actually create innovations that can scale. And to some degree, the Roomba story is that we were working on a DARPA mind-sweeping program that was trying to optimize coverage for an outdoor mind-sweeping robot. And some intern was like, hey, if, we can, if we've optimized for clearing a minefield, we could also just attach a vacuum cleaner to that and it would be optimized for cleaning someone's room. And luckily, they had the private capital at iRobot to spend the couple of months to build the first prototype. But had they been purely on this government research contract, they never would have been able to do that. And YouTube cat videos of Roombas would not exist today. And that would suck for all of us. Have you seen Roomba review YouTube? It's incredible. It's just every single, there's there's dozens of these now. And they do the same, the, the guy has a standardized tests and you can see them like making the wrong turn. And the $100 one is stupider than the $200 one. It's like actually shockingly entertaining because it, you really see the progression of the technology watching a video from 2013 to 2021. I have actually not, I'll have to go look those up after this. I do think it is a telling story about, uh, there's a lot of, of social policy and prediction that goes into some of these innovations, the how our autonomous vehicles can be adopted by the public. And if Roomba is any kind of uh, predictive story, people sit there and watch the Roomba and call customer service because it's not vacuuming the floor the way that they would do it, not realizing that it's robotically optimized, not human optimized. It'll be a lot of things that the innovators in research labs and whatnot trying to create the, the most ingenious electromechanical device miss 
is this social acceptance question. So I do think it is a telling story as we look towards some of these future advances that are going to get deployed out amongst the kind of non-technical folks in, in the country. Oren, what's tough tech? So tough tech is technologies that uh, have been developed in our universities or in our government labs that if you squint real hard and think 15 to 20 years out, these are the foundations to break through societal changing infrastructure developments. But because of a number of market failures have historically not been able to scale to the point that they can make that impact. And so the engine was stood up to facilitate both the early investment in these tough tech founders, often academic founders coming out of our university research labs, but really looking at the frictions across the board through the full evolution of the company and figuring out how we plug those gaps or if you want to use the old cliche scale, the various valleys of death, of which there are apparently more than one. We've actually found a number of them. So it's every time we peel back the onion with these companies, it's one more valley to, to figure out how to build a bridge across. To, to the day one project's credit, that's a lot of what they've been focusing on is across the life cycle from the earliest academic fellowships to later stage capital. We need all of these things to fall into place to start seeing these companies make the impact at scale that we think they can. So Oren, as you said, there are multi, there are lots of valleys of death, which we've covered to various degrees. Let's start with the early stage one. We had Alan Gura on back a few weeks ago, activated his method for solving the issue of PhDs who are don't know what they want to do with their life and someone should be whispering in their ear telling them to start firms. But what's your take on the sort of challenges of the mindset of that PhD or postdoc? And and what are those sort of conversations like? Do you feel like eyes open when you talk to them or are people already thinking through these these questions of scale and, and productization once, once they connect with folks like you? It's a great question. I, I think, so first of all, full capitalist disclosure, we are a venture capital fund, right? And so we are making investments in companies that we believe will have a global impact for you know social good, but that the way that they can accomplish that is by economically growing in scale. And the transition from breakthrough technology in academia to being a CEO or CTO of a high growth company is a pretty big step function and one that we've created the engine in order to support because we fundamentally believe that the folks that created these technologies will become the best company leaders to bring these technologies to scale. But there is a lot of, it takes a village to both at the early stage where there's a lot of, you know, leveling up of just understanding the left and right lanes of what you need to do as a you know business founder to the later stages. And I think things like what Elon's doing at Activate and i at the very early stages to things like what we do as seed stage investors and then what the government does as there's been work done by AFWorks and NSF on these matching grants that really direct tough tech founders towards both private capital and public capital working in concert, which given the capital requirements of these companies is really critical at the early stage. So we're a lot of VCs are not supportive of collaboration with the government. We are hugely supportive, again, because of the capital requirements of these companies. Let's stay on the founder question for a second, Oren. So wh why do you think the the most technical folks are the ones who make the most sense to run these, run these companies? I, I think it's both sides of the same coin. There is some of these companies are going to take, we're not investing in 
a dating app that you can flip in two years for a billion dollars. This is these this is a seven, 10, 20 year road that some of these founders are gonna walk down. And that's commitment to break through not one door, but thousands of doors. And so the person that has already spent eight years of their PhD life in pursuit of this vision and this dream is a pretty good bet on who is gonna finish that journey. Um, so that's a, the human dimension of it. But then practically, for tough tech, there are certainly some very complex business and financing decisions that need to be made. But growing a engineering team that can transition from the research wickets that you've knocked down during your PhD to the early stage engineering risk to really the later stage deployment risks, that it is beneficial to have the mind of someone that has been wrapped around this technology for a long time to really be a leader in that process. And part of what we as a community do is make sure that we support those founders in surrounding themselves with the people at each stage that they need to be surrounding with to fill in the gaps of whether it's manufacturing or operations or HR or whatnot. But that core vision of where this technology needs to go and the unwillingness to be distracted by that, that is fundamental to the company leadership that you need to, to see these companies scale. And So Oren, you, you mentioned earlier that most VC firms don't do this. And if I had $10 billion to allocate, I would much I, it, it, like making two billion, making a billion dollars on a dating app in a year sounds pretty good to me. What is your pitch to investors and who is like, who is most and least receptive to this type of longer term hardware, hardware focused, hardware and deep tech focused investing? So I don't think it's I don't think it's a question of just give the, the simple sound it sounds like a glib answer. I'm not particularly worried about the returns that our fund will get if Commonwealth Fusion actually figures out how to deploy unlimited energy to the globe. That's trillion dollar returns. And yeah, time horizons are always important in financial markets. But as we look at these companies that have the potential to scale and they will just take more capital and longer time, part of our investment thesis is that if these companies successfully scale, these will be phenomenal returns to our investors. And so really the question is finding that diamond in the rough opportunity that could actually potentially deploy, change the world for good and make a huge economic impact. And it's just, it's a lot more work spending 10 years removing those friction points than it is spending two years on eyeballs, but it's work that the team is passionate about and in it for the long run for us. Yeah. I guess I was trying to ask more of a macro question of what would it take to get the balance of VC funding pushed more towards this type of investing? Or is this just like you you can't sort of mess with the market too much because you want people to be chasing returns and chasing big companies? I wouldn't advocate that all of VC should move to this for a variety of reasons. I think dating apps are great and important maybe to society. And there's plenty of things that should be funded that aren't solving for human health issues or climate change or, or whatnot. So I think there's a market for everything. But I do think, to your point, public capital, because there's so much private capital out there, in, in our minds, there is a, a, a government failing that more government funding isn't being expended to attract private capital markets, especially at the early stage to making these longer term investments. And I think if we saw some of these matching grant 
public-private partnerships with private capital and public capital, we would see the aperture for private capital widen, and we would see the government leveraging the benefits of private capital in terms of market analysis and the things that private capital markets are trained for and good at. And so I really think it's a symbiotic relationship that the government has dipped its toe in the water. I mentioned NSF and AFWorks especially, NSIC from DIU, but really is not standardized across the board of early staging investment. In the proposal you wrote in the in with the day one project, I recommended creating an infrastructure bank within the Department of Commerce to enable the government to quickly support large scale infrastructure projects that utilize tough tech. Can you give us an example of what that might look like? Given that you said that novel tech is rarely competitive for these types of projects, how do you reconcile risk You know, when executing these large-scale infrastructure projects? Yeah, so first of all, I would be remiss to not give a shout out to my co-authors, Mike Kearney and, and Katie Ray on that. It was certainly their brainchild as well. We, we look at, and you can see some of the, the previous success and failures of this concept with the DOE loan program office, but fundamentally there's a market failing between what it makes sense for venture capital and equity dollars to fund in, in the research and development phase and then you have a lot of these tough tech companies that have proven out a subscale pilot. And then at some point when they built their first two commercial installations and they've proven out the economics, they've proven out what the offtake rates are, and you know, then they're qualified for typical private capital project finance or debt or other financial vehicles that are well known. There's this Valley of Death, uh, that is a market failing right now in that what we call the first of its kind, which is that really capital intensive first commercial installation that kind of no one will fund. And the idea is taking some of the lessons from the loan program office, but making these government loan guarantees both less overhead to apply for, but also smaller dollars so that they're applicable to a wider variety of tough tech companies across different technical areas. And it really does require a political acceptance of a governmental portfolio approach. We're quite convinced that at the end of the day, the government will see positive returns from this loan program office. But we also have to accept that out of a portfolio of 30 loan guarantees, some percentage of those may very well fail, and that's fine. It's fine for the country from an impact perspective, but it's also fine. Do you feel like the government's collective conscious is heading that way towards accepting a portfolio-based approach? I think so. I think what we've seen recently with the Republican shift towards being willing to re-look at some of the industrial policy third rails. I will just say that the Solyndra Fund was certainly used as a political bludgeon, but if you actually look at the economics of it, return capital to the government and the taxpayer. So I think as, as now that it looks like that bid is being flipped at a bipartisan basis that, hey, we are losing in this global competitiveness battle. We do need these uh, job creating industries in the US and we do need the government to do some amount of intervention. The compromise of having the government use the treasury to back some of these entrepreneurs, but really leave it with private companies to be successful or not, as opposed to the government bringing this across the finish line, I think is a bipartisan compromise that folks are optimistic in saying that we're beginning to adopt that kind of 
But the, the test isn't now, right? The test is when you have the first $50 million loan that blows up. And if Mitch McConnell is going to decide to say, oh, you know what? Okay, this was like to fight China. So I guess we shouldn't beat the Repu- beat the Democrats over the head for it. And personally, I'm a little pessimistic because it is a very tempting and compelling line of political attack to say that this is that what you're doing is government waste and it's liberal priorities and why are you you know wasting time in these you you talk about like the sort of diverse communities or whatever it's if it's not my state then it's stupid there there is some optimism rightly so of the money that seems like it's going towards the competition act but the gop just loves talking about you know how the national science foundation is wasting money doing sociology studies or like looking at bugs or whatever and that sort of knee-jerk reaction is tempered somewhat by people being freaked out of china but i don't think is is necessarily completely gone from the the u.s domestic political dynamics yeah my optimistic response to that is there will always be political infighting and and whatnot and it seems like it's in many ways as bad now as it ever has been but i think there's this recognition amongst across government that to some degree we've fallen asleep at the switch. And so when you look at these massive semiconductor plays that China is doing and across tough tech, as well as other near peer competitors, you can't really argue that, oh, it's fine. The U.S. is is winning. We're fine. Like it, it is becoming so absurd to try to make that argument that we're fine in even in just global competitiveness, much less the other impacts that tough tech might have that. I think it is yeah. driving a, a recognized need to come together. And I think we saw that in the most recent past doubling DARPA's budget and putting $52 billion into the semiconductor industry. It's, that would have been unheard of five years ago. And I think that it, it represents good momentum from our politicians that they realize that the time for infighting is over. We're a hair's breadth away from losing any chance of catching up in some of these critical national security industrial base. Yeah. I think you're right. I think you can dismiss climate change. You can dismiss equity issues. But in in 2021, if you're a Republican politician, you can't really dismiss China. We'll just have to see. Adam, any thoughts on this before I start talking about R&D in, in your proposal? Yeah, what do I want to say is I, I think that these are very big issues. And by my focusing on R&D on the early stage, earlier stage values of death, in no way d- dismisses these later stage ones. I think these, this is a huge deal. So- Adam, what do current government research organizations do well and don't well? Do you have like a power rankings in your head of national labs and, and NSF and, I don't know, pick, take whoever else? Again, RDCs? I think there there are so many different things that the research system has to do that it's not a, a one-dimensional kind of ranking. There's just many different kinds of research. And so NSF does certain kinds of research and not others, and each of these does. And so what's interesting to me is can we identify areas where nobody's quite doing it well, or at least where there's not a kind of agile, repeatable system to, to do it well? One of those areas... And again, there are many, but the one that we're focusing on is problems that are a little bit earlier in the basic research spectrum, actually. It's not so much that you've developed a system and, and you need to deploy it as a product or get it to scale uh, and get people to pay for it. It's really problems, even in more basic research, where the incentives just don't line up 
for people to get them done in any of the existing systems. I think an example, just to tell you that these things exist at all, would be something like LIGO, the Gravitational Wave Observatory that, that won the Nobel Prize some years ago. That was not the kind of thing that you could fund a couple of professors and, and grad students to do that required a very coordinated and concerted, deliberate kind of top-down effort to organize. I think the observation we're making is that that let's say in the biological, biochemical sciences, a number of other areas, maybe even in, in energy fusion, other areas, at the earlier end of the, of the spectrum, and at much, scales much smaller than LIGO, there are still places where you need more coordination, more systems engineering, more tight-knit team science or group integration, and focus on goals rather than on individual people's publications or discoveries, and that we don't have an agile way to do that. National labs, in some sense, have many projects within them that take that form. And then DARPA and other ARPA-style agencies are able to do some top-down coordination and say, look, I want these five groups to work together to solve a very well-defined problem, even at early stages. But if I'm a scientist and I have an idea for a new technology for, 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 for measuring the molecules in the body or something like that, but I would need a team of engineers just to prove out the basic idea works in the first place. I don't have a, a good way of doing that. So that's what the idea of focused research organizations are, are about, is how do you bring systems engineering and scale, in some sense, even to earlier parts of the research spectrum and make it easier for people to spin up sort of systems-oriented projects. Anything um, societally beneficial, you would say, right, Adam, about the earning uh, barriers when it comes to to pursuing society. The classic example there is really there are certain types of, of data sets or analyses or tools that you would actually want to be very broadly applicable as public goods and broadly used by the research community, broadly used by everyone. The Human Genome Project is, of course, a great example, and there was both a, a kind of private sector and a public sector effort going after that at the time. But fundamentally, now we, we all know what the sequence of the human genome <laughs> Is And I think there, there are still a lot of things in that category. Data sets are the easiest one to imagine is maybe we want to release a data set that's going to help us understand the mechanisms of many different diseases. But if I was to build a system that could do this scale of research to collect that data set, I would normally need a company. I would normally need to, to focus it on a particular disease, a particular drug development project or so on. If you want to go earlier stage and broader, I think mapping the brain is a great example of this that's analogous you know, to what the genome was a few decades. What's the technology for faster, cheaper, better brain mapping? And is that something that is best done as a commercial vehicle or as a initially not-for-profit vehicle? When then the, later on, that will lead to many different commercial verticals to pursue. But should the fundamental tool and the fundamental data sets be just released? You can also say, this is a longer discussion maybe than we, we go into, but historically, something like the transit, I, you could say it's a, in some sense it's a good thing that Bell Labs didn't totally own everything about the transistor. It certainly led to commercial developments downstream. But I think that even now there there are public goods, if, if you want, or areas of research where d doing it by, via startups, and I'm a big fan of doing many kinds of research by startups. And again, it, this is in no way to contradict what Oren is saying about tough tech. I think in, in many cases, that's the optimal way is, is to, to do certain problems with startups. But at earlier stages, you can imagine cases where it is better to have a group of scientists, let's say, working on multiple competing designs and all kind of helping each other in some sense, rather than each startup having its own design that it has to kind of take all the way on its own. What if you want to iterate and cross-pollinate faster? Maybe even in fusion, Commonwealth is a fantastic, uh, relatively mature design. Are there designs even earlier stage, more crazy ideas 
where we would need reactors and instrumentation and teams to be able to iterate over that space fast enough to find the, the, the next level. We see this a lot in the venture capital side of the house with battery chemistries. And there's, because there's such a huge appetite from private capital for that, we're seeing a lot of folks really having to take it to your point to, to market and then either fall off a cliff or scale. And I think there is some early stage collaboration that some of the national labs are trying to do, but could be- What's the genome of battery chemistry that exactly. would, would help everybody? Um, yeah. And, and that's hard to do. I think that is, a, that is very much the job of national labs, but national labs can't solve everything. They're, they're, they have certain missions having to do with energy and national security. If I want to do something totally outside of that, or just a new idea that I might have as a researcher, how do I get a national lab-like a mini project that can still do that. What are your current paths right now? Yeah, we're working both on the the influencing the public sector, but also very heavily on the philanthropic sector, because I think this is also a, a perfect opportunity for, for philanthropic and for public-private partnerships, because the scale of project that we're thinking about, again, is mostly not the multi-billion dollar scale of something like the Genome Project or LIGO, but rather tens of millions of dollars, kind of just ju- ju- like a Series A startup. And uh, I think it's a good match for philanthropic. It's also potentially a good match for things that the National Science Foundation and others are thinking about kind of one level up from what they have now as engineering research centers. How do you, if you go one level up in scale from that, but not that, then you can think about whether those are always going to be led by a university and an academic lab, or could they be led by a, a university adjacent or independent nonprofit or by a public-private partnership? Are there other ways that we can get the systems engineering and the scale and the organization to these projects at these earlier stages? How is what you're different, you know, in that, you know, focused research organizations focus on a single problem and seek an ambitious solution, bringing together a bunch of stakeholders to focus exactly on that at a very early stage point, you know, besides the fact that DARPA works on, you know, the fence relevant projects, why not just spin out more ARPAs? I think we should spin out more ARPAs. And I think that the ARPA process is somehow essential also even to how we would think about at scale spinning up more focused research organizations. I think that DARPA and, and the ARPA idea generally gets a huge amount and is really very well matched for these kind of medium scale focused time, but high risk kind of visionary projects. It's a very good match for that. And so I in no way think that focused research organizations should replace DARPA. I think the only observation is just that DARPA does tend to use an externalized research model. So it, it, DARPA mostly funds teams of existing organizations to produce some sort of solution to a problem that, that let's say, the, the military can, can recognize as important at that time. So it tends to be a little bit on the applied end. I don't think they would do a gravitational wave observatory or just a genome or brain map necessarily. They do this for a reason. The externalized research thing is partly so you don't create a bad marriage. It's partly so you can go fast and reconfigure. And if one performer is not performing, cut them and move the next person. Uh, so the program manager has inc- inc- lots of reasons to be doing this externalized kind of plug and play uh, combination of teams. But sometimes you would actually want, just as a startup should be under one roof and have a CEO, you would want to spin up a research project that's under one roof and has a CEO. So I think of this as sort of an addition potentially to a DARPA-like toolkit that both the government and, and philanthropists should have a repeatable way of spinning up, that we have DARPA projects that then become uh, focused research organizations in some sense, yeah. Since I have you here, Adam, you've also done some research on geoengineering, which is a pet internet reading interest of mine. What is it? Where are we? How much hope can I put in this saving the world? 
Yeah, this is also just an area of in- internet reading for me as well. And it, people mean different things by it. It used to be that term would would also refer to carbon capture, but I now think carbon capture has been appropriately moved out of the 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 category of geoengineering. The idea is simply: Are there things other than just pure emissions reductions that we can do to change the dynamics of the climate? And I think that there there is appropriately lots of need for caution and lots of need for how the governance of this would work. I think what people what gets a little bit lost in that is that there are interesting technological directions. There's potentially ways you could locally do certain forms of geoengineering, spraying seawater into clouds or things like that. That could be local, could be fast to turn off. You tell the Siberia one. What's the Siberia one? With, with, with the, with the woolly oh, mammoths. Oh, the mammoths. Yeah, this. that's one. I haven't looked in too much detail on this one. But that, that's the idea that m- methane release from the permafrost would be lessened if you had uh, mammoths uh, stomping, which is how it used to be. And, and, and now some people are thinking, should, should we break some mammoth-like uh, animals up there? I'm not sure... <laughs> but that I think is important to be thinking in this active way with a number of caveats. But I think the the point to me again, as, as someone to focus on the the fundamental research and fundamental technology platforms more, is what what's really is there a really a physical obstacle? Is there any reason you couldn't make geoengineering safe, local, controllable, easy to turn off, easy to monitor, and all those things? I think with a robust enough research program, there will that will be at least part of. Uh, the toolkit that we want to have, if only to curtail very much tail risk kind of issues. Um, yeah. Or, and I'm really looking forward to you pitching your LPs on the um, uh, woolly mammoth slash like giant solar umbrella to save the world the emails have uh, ideas. I, d- I do think for what it's worth that there's an element, uh, as Adam was talking about, the carbon piece of, of this is for a lot of these long term technical bets, it is really hard right now to figure out the economics of carbon capture, specifically around like what carbon pricing will be in the future. And so it makes it hard to do the techno-economic models around certain technologies. But what that means is that investment isn't going into those technologies in the way that they would need to. So there's a little bit of a chicken and the egg. And Adam, I don't know if this fits into the category, but I think that this kind of sequestration carbon capture piece before it's economically viable would probably be a great place to fit into this pre-company research and development. I think there there are definitely multiple new mechanisms that are potentially interesting around carbon capture, in, including advanced market commitments kind of mechanisms, including the kind of uh, loan guarantees you're talking about for scaling things. But there are some basic research problems too. One of the ones that I think is particularly interesting has to do with this idea of enhanced weathering, which is to say that there are certain kinds of rocks, basically, where if you put them in water, they spontaneously take up a carbon and deposit it in, into the ocean from the atmosphere. This was also something that could potentially reduce ocean acidity. There's lots of basic science about this that requires relatively large-scale experiments and, and systems work, if you will. How much do you have to grind the rock up before it, it dissolves fast enough? What happens if you have microbes on the rock helping it? Those, what's, what's the exact chemistry that happens in the ocean? There's lots of research questions about that that are very much in a pre-commercial nature. It's not at all obvious how you capture the value from any of that, but they also require pretty large-scale work. In principle, this is very much in the DOE kind of ballpark, but it's an example of the kind of thing that I think we should be thinking about. Yeah, I'm not sure the the ten dollars recurring donation that I have to the Siberia project is quite going to make the difference. It's an interesting concept, Um, but fair enough. 
I, I know. So I want to do a little battle royale on which Valley of Death is the worst. And I know, Adam, you're going to say we need to solve everything. But Oren and, Oren and Adam, if you two want to take sides and make your pitch for which one you think is most important to solve first. I'll draw first blood. I got to be careful here because I really do believe that the early stage Valley of Deaths are quite hard. And so I don't want to, I don't want to make it seem like there's short circuits to pull vault over. I, yeah. But, but yeah, maybe we'll do it on two dimensions. Like which one is the, what's the most difficult to fix and what's, which one has the most impact. If so you if you it. just look from a founder perspective on the need to go find capital in, in a hard situation, of finding capital, which occurs at the early stage and late stage. There is a more of an opportunity, if, if a founder needs one to $3 million for their very first investment, prove out some milestones before they build a pilot. There is an opportunity to mix potentially some non-dilutive capital with philanthropy to diverse private capital uh, providers. And look, I want to be very clear that I think it's really important for the public to get together with private capital providers at the earliest stage in order to see uh, wider investments on these really important companies. But when you contrast that to you've done all this work over five years and now need to go find $75 million to build first plant and there's literally no capital out there, it's really hard to build that. 75 million piece by piece. So from a, just a purely fundraising perspective, I think that the scale up first of its kind Valley of death is a, a taller cliff to climb. And so that is my most hedgy way of answering the question of which Valley of death is hardest to scale. And, and I, again, I, I think I'm a fairly agreeable person <laughs> maybe by your standards, but no, I, I think that even if you think about the amount of money, I think that the amount of money needed to unbottleneck some of these earlier stage research problems in an absolute terms is lower. It's very true that in order to de deploy certain, certain kinds of large scale energy technologies or manufacturing technologies, there's just sheer scale of physical material that you have to move and number of people that have to be employed and what capitalizes that. Carbon capture is a fantastic example where that's going to just very heavily depend, I think, on government. Uh, policy for that to work. Th there are certain things where just the scale is just enormous. And so I think that is a, a big obstacle. My only point I would just put in is that I, I don't think it's the I don't think it's the only one. And I think there's there's certain kinds of breakthroughs where you need systems engineering or startup like teams to demonstrate that breakthrough, even the very first time or develop that fundamental data set, that those are really important. And those could then get you to things that that would really be on a different cost curve if you really could get fusion to work or understand the aging process or figure out how to really do carbon capture in a at scale there, this early stage stuff is going to matter over i think more or less the same time scale just because it's just harder to predict thanks so much for being a part of china talk usually i get one review a month last week i got seven here's a selection from bca it's a good show the host voice is fine five stars ed and wu yuan the highlight remains the host's mellifluous, honey-steeped tones, which are really wasted not leading a 70s soul band. Five stars. Unum plurum. I've never been interested in China or other countries, but I was drawn in by Jordan's sweet tenor. Most of the content goes over my head, but I cannot get enough of this man's voice. Minus one star because my girlfriend is starting to get jealous. Four stars. Keep the reviews coming. I'll read them on air.
So many things. 